Welcome to the new nurse podcast. I'm Nurse Meg. And I'm Nurse M. Remember this little pen quandary that I had a couple of episodes ago? Sure do. It's like I just can't find a pen to save my life exactly in that moment that I really need a pen. Okay, I found a Sharpie. Not the same thing, but we're going <laughs> so to make true. it work. Oh my gosh. It's so true. Ah. Such a struggle. Did you see the picture that I had posted a couple of, I think like last week about my husband's pocket contents? Oh, yes. Did you see that one? I'm never quite sure exactly what you're seeing because I think that you do more like social media fasts. Yes. So while I you do. love our little platform, you're also trying to like keep a healthy balance. Oh, and there's a pen. Okay. Hello. Yay. Pen. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I swear there was not a pen there a minute ago. (laughs) All right. I'm sitting on my bed trying to balance a cup of coffee. I'm sure this will end perfectly fine. (laughs) I believe in you. Um, What about this weather? Are you loving it? I hope hope by the time that this airs, it's still this nice because I don't trust Mother Nature anymore. Oh, why? Because we had three inches of snow on the ground exactly like four days ago. Yes. Is that why you have trust after issues we with had? Nature? Yes, after we had such warm weather, it was like, uh, and then all of a sudden you woke up to snow again. So I am not getting my hopes up, but apparently that was the onion snow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll, which, we'll roll with it. Which is a thing. I um, heard. My husband's from Philly. He doesn't understand all of these, like, well, Dutchy yeah. terms. Yeah. Well, we're like, sometimes I just very much feel like a country bumpkin, I guess, because I'm like, you know, like woolly bear caterpillar, caterpillars predict uh, what the winter is going to be like. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, <laughs> do you know, do you know what that I've is? I've never heard that <gasps> one. Okay. Stop. See, Lancaster County people are. We're, we're strong in these like I don't even know where all of this has come from like the farmer's almanac or something yes like, do you know yes. what a woolly bear caterpillar is yes so based on how dark they are with their like orange and brown yeah like or black like predicts like the darker color means that it will be like a worse winter interesting I know I haven't seen any well, no, they they were around in like like the fall before, or like they predict, like they're like the groundhog. Ex- yes, right. Okay, exactly. Interesting. So-, <laughs> <laughs> so, if you ever need to know just like useless information like that, I'm probably your girl because I feel like I know all of that out here in Lancaster <laughs> County. <laughs> Fun facts for your morning. Fun facts, yay! I know, and we are coming at you in the morning. Um, which is not normally the way that Em and I do this. We're not normally like bright eyed and bushy tailed. I don't know. Are you bright eyed and bushy tailed this morning? Um, you sound like you're a little bit on the struggle, but I'm a little bit sleepy. So if y'all are driving or whatever, and you're going to work and you're sleepy, you are not alone. Um, did you grab coffee this morning? I didn't. I've been trying to not rely on coffee and my caffeine intake. And um, Mm -hmm. I've been trying to do more teas, which I know you're a big tea person. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But so I've been like not wanting to wake up and go straight to coffee in case I want some later in the day. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah, that's the latest. So we're with you guys wherever you are this morning. Um, 
driving home or in the evening, probably you're either resonating with M sleepiness or I did have my coffee. And so (laughs) I am very ready to tackle this day. Um, We've been talking about stories this month and I'm just freaking in love with this topic. M got a chance to share her story last week, which she's adorable. Um, And I'm sure that you guys all very much enjoyed it. And we kind of are going to circle back with them at some point for like a two-parter, I feel like, because Em's also got some like very, you know, it's really hard, I think. Em, you kind of alluded to this too. Like it is hard to obviously unpack your story in like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, pff, hello, that's years and years and years. And so even when I was listen- re-listening to your episode, it, it does feel a little... um like it's just not giving it full credit for how much some of those chapters that you walked through probably just sucked like just completely not fun like looking back when you were like like listening to you about like your um tearing your acl and things like that i'm just like you know it's very easy to kind of gloss over all of that right in the big scheme of things but you had said like when you're walking through it though i mean that can be a very trying dark period that doesn't necessarily come off that way I guess a little bit when you're like sharing it later especially because you've got the rest of the story now so it's like oh okay this part has felt redeemed and maybe it is now redeemed but that's still like a hard place to be in right right Um, and then the second part of your story of like the relationship with Adam and where you were at with all of that and I mean there's like really beautiful redemptive parts quite obviously because now you two are married (laughs) um but again that doesn't mean that it sucked any less when you were in the midst of like the unknown yeah so when, when I was looking at my story um so I'm kind of lucky in the sense that because of the company that my husband started called humankind it's a Bottled beverage company. We donate a portion of sales to clean water projects. Um, is how M and I met because we um, ended up being on a trip to Africa. If you've not ever seen or heard the Dramamine story of <laughs> M, um, please do yourself a favor and find that episode because, um, yeah, first impressions. M was like, <laughs> M was so freaking drugged up. There was I was just like all the conclusions that I was coming to myself. Like, is this girl okay? monumental Um, and so I've gotten a chance to share my story a lot specifically in regards to you know how we're doing like clean water projects in developing countries like how did I land there so I feel like in some ways my story um, when I was sitting down to write my notes on what I wanted to share today like it's a lot but it's pretty condensed because I've been here a time or two before um So my personal story has a lot of heartaches and ups and downs like everybody else. Um, My story is a little bit longer than M's because I'm a little bit older. Uh, (laughs) But then it also means that I've gotten a chance to see some more of the redemptive pieces um, as the years have played out. And so if I go back and start at my childhood, which is where, like M had said, we kind of all start there, right? There's probably the upbringing started to really form who you are. Um, And I'm not going to stay in my childhood very long, but as a four-year-old, so I should say that I am a twin. And so being a twin has always brought really unique aspects to my life. Obviously, it's funny because people always want to know, like people are kind of fascinated by twins. Mm -hmm. 
I get it. But when you are a twin, you're like, I get it, but I don't know anything different. So for me, uh, you know, when people right. are just like, what is it like? I'm like, I don't know. What's it like to not be a twin? You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> right. Um, so my sister and I, um, people always thought that we were identical. Like if she walked into a room right now, there would definitely be an awareness that we are basically like a set, a pair. We belong together, although there's significant differences in our personalities. Um, but that kind of plays out, not in the story that I'm going to be sharing today, but that definitely has played out a lot in just me recognizing and trying to find like my own space in the world because it kind of felt like you always had a little bit of like a competition. Not saying that's good. I don't know, Em, have you, did you have a competition against your sister? Did you ever um, feel competitive? I think maybe she felt that way like growing okay. up. Okay. And she's the younger like, one. Like following in the footsteps. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so as a four-year-old, I remember it's one of my earliest memories of putting a Band-Aid on my mom's finger. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't get emotional there. I just like lost my voice for a second. <laughs> Hold on. <clears throat> Sorry about that. <laughs> it sounded like I was getting like super emotional all of a sudden. About a Band-Aid, a cute um, little Band-Aid. <laughs> I was putting a Band-Aid on my mom's finger. I think she could have got like a paper cut or something. And I remember saying that I wanted to be a nurse as a four-year-old. And as that story like progressed through the years, I ended up in sports medicine um, as an athletic trainer in high school and really felt like a lot of my formative high school years were alongside um, on the sidelines of a football field. Like my stepdad was a, a football coach. And so after the games on Friday nights, like the coaches would be in our living room, like reviewing um, the highlights of the game. We were doing two a days in August out on the sidelines. Like I just spent so much freaking time um, now that I really think about it. Like as an athlete, you're like, yeah, this is a lot of time <clears throat> when you're not even like playing the sport. And you're like, I was there like every practice, every everything. <laughs> and it kind of just um, resonated even more with me that I really loved medicine. I really loved helping people. I was always a super sensitive kid, which if you guys have listened to us before, you know that both M and I resonate as empaths and highly sensitive people. And so it kind of makes sense that when somebody is injured or sick or whatever, that it would like bubble up inside of me that I wanted to be able to fix that and be able to get somebody feeling better and not in, you know, a bad space and get them into a healthy space. So sports medicine became my focus. I thought that I would go off to college and become an athletic trainer. And I always said I wanted to be an athletic trainer in the NFL. Uh, cliff note, though, I, or side note, I don't really love sports. So, like, thank you, Jesus, that <laughs> every day is not necessarily spent on the sidelines. But I loved people. And like I said, I loved medicine. And so it was just really, like, easy to imagine myself in that space. I became a Christian when I was 15. I was raised, I would say, in the church. Like, I grew up going to church on Sundays, but I just really never knew that I could have a personal relationship with God. And so when I was 15, I fell in love with a new kid that moved into our school district. He happened to be a pastor's son and fell in love with him. And he made sure that I fell in love with Jesus. And I am forever grateful to him because it really changed the whole trajectory of my life. And so as a 17 year old, when it was time to apply for college, I knew that I knew that I knew that I was supposed to go to Eastern University outside of Philadelphia. 
as a youth ministry major. And so I applied and accepted never having been on campus. I didn't even know what the college looked like that I was now going to be going to. And wow. um, right. That's a bold step. That was a bold little 17 year old Meg. Yeah. Um, and your transition from the sports training to youth ministry. Wow. Yeah. I just really got on fire and, you know, wanted to be able to impact people and telling them about the love of Jesus. Um, it was kind of cool though, because Eastern university, like a lot of Christian campuses was a little bit smaller. And so they didn't have, um, like a super, they had an athletic training program because one of my friends went there and went to, through the program, but you didn't have to necessarily be in the athletic training program in order to actually be an athletic trainer. So I ended up being the athletic trainer my freshman year with our men's basketball team. And that became my work study, which was great. They were like, Hey, you know what you're doing? Um, do you want to be paid to do this? And I was like, yes, please. So <laughs> thanks for that. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so I loved my time at Eastern immensely, but I knew that a year and a half after I was on campus that I was meant to be gone, that my time at Eastern was done. And I totally did not understand that. Um, I had a lot of conversation with Jesus. I was like, hey, I like it here. Uh, I'm happy here. I don't want to leave. And I remember him saying like, yeah, but. I'm asking you to come out of Eastern. And I was like, then why did you ever call me here? Like super frustrating point of my story. I was 20 years old um, and just really wrestled with him, but I knew what I heard. And so in another bold step, I left Eastern, um, didn't really know where I was going or what I was supposed to be doing, um, ended up meeting my first husband and we ended up engaged and married roughly a year after we met. Now, I didn't leave school for my husband. There was already a decision in my heart before I had met him. Um, and I went to Philhaven, actually as like a 19-year-old, <laughs> to work there. Um, and it really started reminding me how much I loved the world of medicine. But at Philhaven, I really saw like RNs, doing the majority of the paperwork and LPNs being the ones that were having interactions from like a medical quote medical standpoint. Cause obviously the world of mental health is vastly different than like the world of um, inpatient care. And so I had a friend that was one of my best friends at Eastern who was grad had graduated the program and ended up going um, to Lancaster general and working as a nurse aide and deciding that she was going to become an RN and that they were going to pay for her schooling. And she said to me, you know, why don't you, if you're kind of thinking about nursing, why don't you get a job here as a nurse aide? They're looking for it and let them pay for your schooling. And so I did that, um, stepped into the ICU as a nurse aide and completely, completely fell in love with it. I was just like, this is the kind of nurse that I want to be. These patients are super sick, but it's like the one-to-one -one care that is really resonating with me because you can really make a difference. And so for the next three years, um, I poured into my studies and then I ended up graduating and taking a position as an RN um, in the ICU. I'm trying to think where I want to go with my story. Okay, so put the nursing part of that on hold. <laughs> because I want to touch really briefly on the marriage that I was in. So as a 20 year old, I got married. 
And my husband was dealing with depression while we were in our engagement. And I knew that um, he was upfront about it, but not necessarily dealing with it, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was upfront with me, but having been raised as a pastor's kid, he kind of was very much in this mindset of like, I can't let people know my weaknesses and my struggles. And so he wasn't Mm. very forthcoming with like the rest of the world, including his family. And two weeks before our wedding, I walked into what was going to be our apartment. We already had the apartment. um, And I was going to move into it after we got married. And I walked in and found him attempting uh, to commit suicide. Mm. Oh, Meg. And I think one of the things that we don't always talk about suicide attempts, um, I got really focused on him, which is 1000% appropriate. But I didn't do a good job of taking care of myself as a 20 year old. I just kept like moving forward, moving forward, moving forward, not thinking, not doing, um, and just being strongly supportive of him. Um, but it ended up leading to like enabling him because he wasn't doing the hard work himself. I was doing the hard work for him. And so we ended up admitting him into, um, an inpatient setting, um, so that he could get the help that he needed. And I continued on with wedding plans. Um, while visiting my fiance in a locked inpatient psych unit. And two weeks later, we got married. And I will say that we had people come and say, are you sure that this is what you should do? Um, I kind of wish those voices would have been even louder and even stronger. But in my mind, I was just like, love can conquer all of this. Jesus is bigger. I can love him enough to get us through this. Um, And the questions that I wasn't asking was... Did he want to get through this? Did Was he going to do the hard work as well? Right. And so we really struggled for 11 years and ended up divorced um, after 11 years and after just a heck of a time. And he was a good guy and is a good guy in so many ways. Um, but he eventually came to the end of himself and said, I don't know how long it's going to take me to find myself, to figure myself out. And I'm don't want to continue to like destroy you in the process. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, I'm not an advocate for divorce. And yet at the same time I am divorced. And so I understand how those areas can become very gray, very quickly. Right. Um, and I just wanted to share that part because I think it really matters. Like the reason that I wanted to do stories is because I think that there's a lot of people out there that need to hear one another's stories. And like yeah. I said, at times we're living in our victories And most people don't know a lot of the hardships that we've walked through. And more importantly, what God has, like I said, redeemed and healed and made beautiful in its brokenness. Right. So let's go back to Meg as an ICU nurse. Um, So at this point, my marriage is on the rocks. Um, It's pretty much been on the rocks since day one. I'll be completely honest. There's other uh, things that happened within six months of being married that would have been grounds for me to leave. Um, and I didn't, I continued to stay, I continued to fight, but our marriage was very much in a a very rough spot. 
And so as an ICU nurse, it was in 2010. So I guess I would have been a nurse for like two-ish years, two and a half years. And um, there was a massive earthquake in Haiti and that changed the trajectory trajectory of my life again um, because I watched a country that I knew nothing about just falling apart and felt very called and very compelled to go and help. And so I wanted to immediately, I started calling the Red Cross. I started reaching out, trying to figure out how I could be on disaster teams. Um, And basically they were like, if you're not trained, we're not taking you. The situation is so dire that if we take you, um, we could potentially be doing more damage to an already depleted country. Like there's not enough resources of food and housing for locals let alone the teams that we're bringing in which makes disaster relief super complicated like it really Mm -hmm. gave me an awareness of like how how do you do that well right and so I ended up hearing through one of my docs on the unit that another doctor uh had gone down and you know that I should reach out to him and maybe go on a team with him and when I reached out to that doctor he said I won't be going down um, anytime soon. But if you really feel called, let me, you know, get your team together and I'll tell you everything you need to know. And I'll connect you with a hospital down there um, and go and do it. And I did. So I led my first team having never been in the country guys. Like every time I like I'm saying these things, I'm like, man, I just have a level of boldness, I guess. But honestly, it's it's the Jesus in me. Like when I feel convicted to do something, I have to do it because like, I feel like I can't not do it. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. So um, God loved the team of five that were like, we barely know this chick. She's never done this before. Let's all go to like, uh, Haiti is considered a fourth world country. We always hear the term terminology third world country, which is actually not accurate, but um, I digress. So <laughs> it's actually the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. People live on less than a dollar a day in Haiti. And so it doesn't tend to be an overly safe country because desperate people do desperate things. Um, And yet I knew that and I didn't care. So whatever. We landed (laughs) in this teeny tiny plane, y'all. We were flying in a plane. I'm not lying. They would actually weigh you before they put you on the plane because they had to like purposely and strategically place you in the plane so that they could balance it out crazy um everybody raise your hands who doesn't want to be in a plane that you have to be balanced out like a (laughs) freaking teeter-totter swing at the playgrounds that is crazy that's crazy for the whole flight well right i mean they they would weigh you ahead of time like they would literally put you up on like the luggage scale and then you guys, we were getting in the plane and they'd only let one person on the stairs at a time as we're like, we're not going down like, you know, the little, the little um, tube chute that you normally walk through to get into the plane. You're like walking across the tarmac and going up the stairs into this like, I don't know, 30 seater plane. It was like the size of a stick of gum. Do you know what I mean? It was so tiny. And then they would seat you accordingly to like your weights and whatever. In hindsight, I'm surprised that anybody ever wants to travel with me. I was going to say, I'm just like thinking about getting a team together. I'm like, that's amazing. (laughs) These people are amazing. They're like seriously my heroes. (laughs) And so we landed in Haiti, um, got off standing on the tarmac, literally have a book bag on my shoulders, which was pretty much like undies and socks and a toothbrush. And um, 
my team looked at me and they're like, now what? And I was like, I have no idea. Let's go figure it out. So we walked into like the most rudimentary um, airport system that you've ever seen and found a Haitian holding a sign and off we went on like our crazy adventure. And I completely fell in love with the country. I completely fell in love with medical missions. Um, They were dealing, it was like September of that year. They were dealing with uh, the quake victims from January, which is insane. And so they had tons of like military tents set up in this um, established hospital in the North of Haiti. And all of the quake victims uh, were still out that I mean so we're just talking like months and months and months and they actually have a prosthetic lab and they were dealing with amputees and it was it was something to behold I'll tell you what I'm sure um six weeks later I went back down to Haiti because I was like obsessed at that point and had a team of physical therapists with me because that's what we needed and ended up being on the front lines of a cholera outbreak And again, that changed the trajectory. So like six weeks earlier, I'm in Haiti and I'm like full circle moment. Oh my gosh, this is why I was called to be a nurse. I love, 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 love this. Medicine is my ministry. Like who cares if you can't even speak the language? Right. Six weeks later, the trajectory changed again in my life or became more clarified because I was on the front lines of a cholera outbreak and it was just people dying within 24 hours because they didn't have access to clean drinking water. It was terrifying. Everybody was terrified. Cholera hadn't been in the country for the last 50 years. They didn't know what was going on. Um, I mean, people are showing up in like wheelbarrows at times because that's the only way that people can literally get them to us. It was complete chaos. There was a doctor from Doctors Without Borders who was teaching everybody how to triage, but watching people die of a waterborne illness is just horrible, just mm-hmm. horrible. I mean, I know we're all in the midst of a pandemic now, and so you can understand like the breadth of it. Um, but as much as we feel like COVID in some ways, maybe not preventable, but there are like measures that people can take to try to protect themselves. Illness, yeah, now. To simply be dying because you didn't have access to clean drinking water, it just feels like, where is the nearest brick wall that I can beat my head against? Mm-hmm. And so within 24 hours, I'm standing outside in the hot Haitian sun, and I'm like yelling at God. I'm just having it out with him. I'm like, this is the craziest crap I have ever seen. I should say that I get very real with God. Like, he can handle it. He's not scared of it. <laughs> and I'm just like, what am I supposed to do? I can literally like rehydrate them, do everything we need to do, get them back to like full health. But if I'm sending them back to a dirty water source, they're going to get sick again. This is the most cyclical um, feeling of like just loss and hope, hopelessness. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I felt very defeated in those moments. Um, Like, what am I supposed to do? God, I don't even know how to do infrastructure. Right. And so there ended up being a political coup. They ended up putting us in lockdown. I ended up, oh man, that's like a whole story for another time. They ended up emergently evacuating us through the Dominican Republic and sending us home because the country ended up shutting down the airports because it became such an unsafe space. Crazy. It was crazy. It was completely crazy. But it also gave me a real awareness to what happens in these countries. Again, desperate people do desperate 
things. And when you just don't have a voice and you don't have a political system, I mean, I know that we are very well aware of like the ways that our political system is lacking in the United States, but we do have some safety measures and safety nets here. When you don't have access to clean drinking water and nobody cares yeah, in the, in the bigger sense of like your country doesn't care. There's nothing they can do about it. Um, that's just really terrifying. And so it kind of changed everything for me because it made me very aware of a lot of people's plights in life and how very different it is for us in the States. Um, and there's so much more that I could say on that and I won't for the sake of time. But I ended up two years later meeting my now husband. And the crazy part of the cholera story is that my now husband um, had been a youth pastor and two years before we had met was doing his devotional time and felt called to start a bottle of water company and donate the profits to clean water projects. And so I really feel like in so many ways, I kind of like prayed the prayer and he got the answer and didn't know why he was being called to necessarily care about clean water. He had been an ambassador for Compassion International and he had seen um, some of these dire situations as well, but like largely wasn't just like, you know, a healthcare professional, like, oh my gosh, we need to do something about, um, the basic needs and like, right. you know, the health of people. And so when he and I connected two years later and, um, started this conversation about what he was doing in life, which was this little tiny company called humankind. And what was I doing in life? I was a critical care nurse leading medical teams to Haiti. It was like, we should get together and grab a cup of coffee and talk about clean water and sanitation. And if that's not an invitation to love, I don't know what it is. And <laughs> I mean, has her relationship stories. That's amazing. If you talk to a guy and they want to talk about, you know, sanitation, like it's a recipe for love for somebody. It's obviously <laughs> worked for he and I. And so I ended up walking through my divorce painfully. My husband had been divorced previously and had actually been single uh, almost the whole time that I was married. And we ended up connecting and I became the VP over the company. And we just decided that we were going to start fighting the good fight to get people access to clean drinking water. And on our wedding day, our cake topper was this beautiful little pottery bowl that is called Kintsugi. Um, do you know what Kintsugi is? No. Have we talked about this? I'm super. No, we haven't. It's a Japanese art form. I'm aware that I've just hit 30 minutes. Sorry, guys. No. I told you my story was going to be just a little bit longer. Yes, but, but I it's very good. Um, Kintsugi is a Japanese art form where you take a broken piece of pottery and fix it and repair it with 24 karat gold. So the cracks actually become filled with gold. And so the broken piece is more valuable and more beautiful than it was before it was ever broken. Oh, that's awesome. And so Hubs and I decided that we wanted that to be a representation that even though we both had gone through divorces that neither one of us wanted um, and had some broken parts of our story that we really felt like God had brought beauty from ashes and made something even more wonderful through the broken 
parts of our story and had like redeemed that. And so we had this little bowl on top of That's our wedding beautiful. cake. And it was, yeah, super special. I'm like looking at the bowl right now as I'm sitting upstairs in our bedroom. I love it. And so there's been so much that Hubs and I have now been, it'll be six years that we've been married. We've had a lot of our own struggles and strife. I mean, there is no perfect relationship out there. Um, there's always two people coming together with a whole host of um, ideas and opinions and uh, wounds and history, right? And you got to navigate that all together. And so I don't want it to just be like, oh, and they lived happily ever after. But like, he's my person for sure. I love that we're doing life alongside each other, even when it feels super imperfect. And I'm just really grateful for all that God has taught me um, and all that God has walked me through. Because I can say that in the midst of my divorce, I remember specifically praying to God. I mean, there were guys, I would be in the fetal position, laying in my kitchen, just hysterical, sobbing, because this is not what I ever wanted. My parents are divorced. My grandparents are divorced. Um, I was going to be the one that broke those generational curses. And I owned that. Like I threw that in Satan's face, like, come Mm, at me, come at me. Cause you're not going to get this, this marriage where I'm not going to divorce. And um, it really took two people to keep it together, to do the hard work. And in the end that like, just wasn't going to be a part of our story. And so I've learned a lot of compassion for people that are in those like imperfect stages and, as I was walking through the storm of divorce, I would just be crying out to God. And I'm like, can you please make this storm stop? Like right. Peter walked on the water, you quieted storms. And I remember him saying to me, I can't stop this storm. Not that I can't, but you know, there are still um, our free will in the midst of this story. Right. And so And to undermine, you know, any kind of spiritual warfare too is that's also very real. Yes. Right. Thank you. Fair. Totally fair. And so he was like, the storm is going to happen, but I will shelter you in the midst of the storm. And there were so many times that I would just be in complete peace while that storm whipped around me. And I can just say that, like, I think that made my 30s in so many ways better than my 20s because I finally had my own stories and hard places like reading the bible is super important um but at times i was just like okay well that was great for like moses and david but hi where like i don't have these parts of my own story with you god and now i've got a history with god and so even as i enter into my 40s i'm like you know always talking to em about unlearning and changing perspective I told my oldest uh, stepson that like the older I get the less I know because there were so many things that I was so sure of when I was in my 20s and life was very black and white right that I suddenly have a lot more grace and I'm aware that there's a lot of gray in certain parts of our stories and like I said we won't always know how it's going to be redeemed and how it's going to be used and TJ, my husband, started telling me very early on in our relationship, like, nothing is wasted. And I have seen that over and over and over again. And oh, by the way, I really believe that the reasons that I was called to Eastern and then called back out of Eastern was so that I could meet TJ, because that was where T and I had originally crossed paths. And he was married, and there was nothing between the two of us other than admiration, Right. And there was absolutely no contact for 12 solid years. We were not 
Facebook friends. We were not, you know, texting each other. There was a hundred percent nothing there. And then 12 years later, God was like, Hey, remember that guy, that guy started a bottled water company. And I was like, I wonder if I could find him and reconnect with him. I would love to hear what he's doing. And so there's so many ways that our stories do get redeemed that for 10 years, I honestly was always a little bit of source of like bitterness and pain. Cause I was like, God, I don't know why you called me to Eastern and called me out of Eastern. But if I hadn't been called out of Eastern, I also would not have become a nurse. And I, though Eastern has a nursing program, but obviously I like love, 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 love being a nurse. And so, um, there's been a lot of healing that has happened over the years as I bundled up a lot of my twenties and just threw it into a corner. And like, I don't have time to think about how I'm feeling about the fact that my husband attempted suicide and we're struggling and there's a lot of unfaithfulness and there's a lot of just like lack of trust and pain. And now I'm an ICU nurse and patients are dying and I don't have time to like unpack that either. So when I talk about like the unpacking, which has actually happened pretty quickly, but when I talk about like counseling and therapy and unpacking and things like that, I mean, y'all that stuff can stay buried and stored away for so many years, but Mm -hmm. at some point, you have to deal with it. Yeah. So. Oh, Meg. That's my story. That's, that's like beautiful. A very quick synopsis of the history of Meg. But I'll tell you what. God is good. And I will scream that from the rooftops for the rest of my life. Every breath that I have. I hope that that is what people see and hear. And I know people get our stories wrong. I shared that on Instagram yesterday that at times part of my unlearning has also been um, and healing processes have been saying that like people will get it wrong about us, right? Like you can look at somebody and just come to conclusions and not know their whole story. And when we have Lacey Megan join us um, sharing her story next week, there's a lot of like ways that you can come to conclusions about who Lacey is by looking at her and by looking at her platform. And, you know, you look at M and, her beautiful little life and you can look at my life and like, there's just so much though that we've all walked through. And, um, I think most importantly for this to be a safe space for people to come and to share their stories and to know that like, we've all done it imperfectly at times. Um, and that that's okay too. Like God does not condemn us when we get it wrong. often comes alongside us, wipes those tears away and whispers in our ears, like you were loved and let's, let's do this better. Let's do this with a little more grace for yourself and for other people. And yeah. Yes. And the end, the end of Meg talking. Wow. Amen, Uh, sister. That was a lot, but thanks for listening to my story. M, M, you knew a lot of it. And did you not know, was there any of that that you didn't know? I feel like. Yeah, there were a few tidbits Okay, and it brings the full circle back even more beautifully. Because M um, gets to hear Meg chatter a lot, but also like just doing devos in Africa and all sorts of different amazing places. Like, I feel like you just kind of always are unpacking those little parts of yourself to people. And I don't know. It's such a beautiful gift, I think. I love it. I agree. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, We'll be sharing Lacey Megan's story. For the next couple of sessions, actually, because she she had a lot to unpack for us, too. And I think you guys are really going to love it. So anyway, happy Monday or whatever day this falls on. And we will catch you next time. 
Yes. Have a great week. Bye, friends. Bye.